you are listening to Sheet Mind's Life, a podcast of serialised fiction written and read by Tansy Maynard Roberts. I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people as the traditional owners and continuing custodians of Lutruwita, Tasmania, the land on which this podcast is recorded. Our current serial is Musketeer Space, also known as the longest book I ever wrote. Which is, of course, the danger of writing books uh, in serial form, as you would know if you saw any Alexandra Dumas novel on a shelf. They're enormous for a reason. Neither he nor I knew when to stop. Uh, having said that, it is kind of lovely to be back. Uh, I broke Musketeer Space up in half, so we'd have time for that uh, Musketeer, sorry, not Musketeer, Belladonna U uh, novella in between, which also took a little longer than I expected. Uh, I think there's a theme here, but it's nice to be back with the spaceships and the swords to finish off this epic adventure. Next year, I'll be going back to the traditional format of this podcast, which is alternating new stories with previously published stories. And the good news is I have quite a backlog now of previously published stories and novellas, so lots of material for some time to come. I appreciate those of you who are still listening at this point. Okay, so we are back for the second half of Musketeer Space. Part 2. A Miracle of Spaceships You loved me once, laid your hands on me and broke my skin. I let you in. You peeled apart my metal doors, thought I was yours shattered my plexiglass, and when there was nothing left of me to fly, watch me try not to cry. You built yourself a brand new miracle, and sailed away into the sky. I remember you. A spaceship never forgets. Meditations on Heartbreak. Collected poems of the Musketeer Aramis. Solar Imperial. 39835.paris Chapter 32 Chasing Spaceships This was not the first time that Athos had lost a spaceship he loved. It was not even the third time. He always promised himself he wouldn't get attached. Avoiding intimacy was something he found easy when it came to people, most people. But spaceships had a way of getting under his skin. It didn't help that he always refused to get a bland factory settings ship. Oh no, he had to go hunting for one with personality. Here we go again. Where all spaceships go to die, he said aloud. This was the storage yard that time, space and musketeers forgot. It was full of salvaged ship debris a low-ceilinged treasure trove beneath the musketeer's space dock. Engies came here from time to time rummaging for spare parts. Finding enough scrap to assemble a complete dart was a pipe dream. He still intended to try. I can't believe Treville made you come here for a replacement for the Parry Riposte instead of printing you a new ship, said Porthos, from where she sat on the hull of a beautiful dart that had once been called the Saucy Nancy, but had been sliced into four separate pieces during a laser battle. Athos remembered that battle. 
The musketeer who piloted her had ended up in three pieces. I can, said Aramis, poking at the rubble of a broken tail fin with her boot. She threatened to, after he lost the balestra last year. That was one time. And I found her again, Athos protested. Can't see how that redeems you for literally losing a spaceship. At least when he blew her up, it was in service to the crown, Porthos teased. I did not. I hate you all. D'Artagnan's laugh, loud and enthusiastic, rang above their bickering. It was her first visit to the land of broken spaceships, and she looked like a wide-eyed child at Joyeux. She always looked like a child to Athos. He had to keep reminding himself that she was twenty, not twelve, and that the three of them didn't actually have to feel guilty that their friendship was going to corrupt her irretrievably. Well, maybe they should feel a little guilty. Why do they hang on to this stuff? asked D'Artagnan, whose spacer mentality had trouble computing that so much yardage on a space station might be reserved for slabs of steel and spare parts instead of dissolving it down to its atoms to be reused as freshly printed parts. You can't print personality, said Athos, who wants a ship without any scratches on the hull. Me, I do. My ship is perfect, Porthos said, waving a hand as if she was volunteering in class. You take too much pride in saving broken things. Athos refused to respond. He didn't want anyone to start assuming metaphors where none existed. Grimaud emerged from behind a stack of cables and hatchways, her usual headphones slung around her neck, instead of clamped over her ears. Treville offered him a new ship, she said. He refused to accept, until he was sure there wasn't something down here that could be salvaged. With that betrayal, his engi stood there and smirked. Athos calmed himself by imagining several ways that he could kill her, silently, with no one ever suspecting him. Aramis and Porthos shot identical looks of delight at Athos. You romantic! Aramis howled. I might swoon. Porthos agreed. D'Artagnan grinned all over her baby face. Athos growled at them all. Speaking of, said Grimaud, and crooked her fingers, found something, boss. He might be furious at her ganging off on him with the other women, but he still trusted her implicitly when it came to spaceships. Athos followed Grimaud deeper into the yard with the others trailing behind. This one's a possibility, said Grimaud, tapping a silver dart with most of its side attached as she walked past it. Someone stripped out the internals, but the hole is sturdy enough to save. And, Athos said patiently, he knew a red herring when he saw one. And then there's this fellow. Grimaud stopped and everyone else bumped into Athos, craning their necks to see. Oh, said Aramis, in a baffled sort of voice. Seriously, said Porthos, is that even a dart? 
D'Artagnan clambered around all of them, half tripping over her own pet engineer, whose name Athos could never remember. Pigtails? Pigtails spotted what they were all looking at a few seconds before D'Artagnan, and responded with a shrill sound and a clap of her hands. Athos did his best to ignore all of them as he took in the sight. It was an old, musket-class dart, practically an antique. He's even older than the buttercup, breathed D'Artagnan, which meant nothing to Athos. He's so ugly, said Porthos, sounding giddy. He was old and bulbous and an odd greenish colour that Athos had never seen on any ship, ever. He was so far from a modern dart that Athos wasn't sure that the designation fit. He wasn't streamlined and elegant like the Paris Riposte had been. Athos was in love already. It's a classic, I suppose, D'Artagnan said doubtfully, trying to be polite. It's amazing, Pigtail said, punching Dana lightly on the arm. I'd love to get my hands on him. So jealous, Madame Grimaud. Please, said Aramis heavily. Please tell me you're not taking him home, Athos. He's not a stray cat. He won't benefit from a little food and attention. Athos held up his hand to silence them all. I'm being seduced, he informed them. Don't spoil our moment. Grimaud gave him one of her rare, dazzling smiles. Guess what he's called? I can't even, said Athos, slowly circling the hull. This marvel was even ugly from behind. He'd never seen such an awkward-looking ship. The pistachio. I am not going to be seen in public with you in that ship, war or no war, Porthos threatened. It was too late. Grimaud smiled and Athos twitched his mouth back at her. Pigtails was already begging them both to let her help with the restoration. Some battles you have to let yourself lose, D'Artagnan told Porthos, patting her on the shoulder. He's hideous, Porthos whispered back as if the ship was physically hurting her with his unfashionably retro appearance. On the bright side, Aramis said, blowing Athos a kiss. Our boy will probably crash or explode him within a few months. That is no consolation, Porthos wailed. How much work does he need? Athos asked Grimaud. All the work, she said with a wry smile. Give me four days and I'll make you a miracle. The Great restoration, took over everyone's lives. Dana suspected that Planchet was hiding her return from, to Paris from Madame Sue so that the other NGs wouldn't get to have all the fun. The pistachio challenge had swallowed all the NGs, not only Grimaud and Planchet, but Bonnie and Bazin too. This period between the declaration of war and the shipping out date was what musketeers called the chase after outfits. Each of them had to get their helm and harness, aka their entire equipment for war, in good order. While most were lucky enough to have an intact ship, 
There were still weapon systems to install or upgrade, repairs to be made, and so on. Dana had none of this to worry about, which left her far too much time to worry. Not only about her friends, who would be seeing direct action in the battles to come, but also about the disaster back on Gascon Station. Messages from her family were few and far between, and she'd only managed to speak to her papa for a couple of minutes in between his burn treatments. The news cycle was all Gascon Station all the time, because the images were more constructive and dynamic than the silent, unmoving siege of alien ships around the orbital cities of truth that occasionally punctuated the media feeds. Waiting was a quiet agony that was never openly discussed. Today, Dana found Athos in the storage yard. He lounged in a low-slung deck chair, sipping the largest cup of coffee she had ever seen, as he supervised the work of the engineers. He wore oversized safety goggles and had his feet up on an antique computer bank. Dana pulled up a jettisoned slab of air ducting and perched beside him. What's the pink line about? It was drawn in chalk, a wide shape around the work in progress that was the pistachio. A second chalk line encircled Athos and his deck chair. Grimaud and I have come to an agreement, he said, taking a slurp of his coffee. Are you not allowed to cross the chalk lines, Dana realised. Not at all. I mean, I understand her not wanting you to poke your nose into the ship. Thank you very much. But why aren't you allowed to leave the yard either? Surely Grimaud would prefer Athos to be anywhere but here. We needed some new parts. The harness in particular, but other bits and pieces that we couldn't reclaim from the yard. Dana didn't like the cagey tone in Athos's voice. And, and the budget that Treville gave me for a replacement ship shrunk somewhat when she found out about the expenses from the Gilded Lily. He winced. There was shouting. Not undeserved, Dana thought, but did not say aloud. How did you get the parts? I played for them, against a bunch of Mandaki smugglers. Dana blinked several times. I thought Porthos was the problem gambler. We don't all keep our vices in separate boxes, D'Artagnan, he said sharply. Sometimes Aramis drinks too much. Sometimes I fuck people I shouldn't. Yeah, okay, I get the picture. Did you win the parts? Eventually. So... Grimaud found out that I used her as a stake in the betting, he grumbled. She's taking it personally. You are the worst, Dana said, smacking him in the chest. She is the most valuable resource I have. Everyone wants her as their NG. That's not a good excuse for putting her up as a stake, Athos. That is the complete opposite of a good excuse. He lifted his safety goggles so she could see the swelling black eye he was sporting. Grimaud agrees with you. I'm not even slightly sympathetic, Dana told him sternly. 
they fell into a long silence together, Athos sipping from his coffee. I owe you an apology, he said after a moment. Dana almost fell off her temporary seat. You what now? The business in the cellar, he said. I said more than I should have. My past is not something with which I want to burden others. What's said on valour stays on valour, Dana said. There was a lot of wine. I hardly remember what you said. Athos gave her a narrow look. You're lying. You can't prove it. Hmm. He was unimpressed by her attempt at tact. Anyway, I'm sure my vast wealth of miserable experience will serve as some form of useful life tutorial for you. Don't trust pretty men who talk sweetly about politics? Dana suggested, thinking of her own recent adventures. Athos's mouth twitched. Damn straight. Bonnie and Planchet went past, carrying lengths of cables and tubing. Planchet gave Dana a wave, delighted to be working on an actual musket-class dart. Athos stood for a moment, his feet brushing the very edge of the chalk circle that Grimaud had drawn around him. Not the bee clips, he called after them. I don't care if it adds to the authenticity of the model. I want silver connections in the harness. A hand that must be Grimaud's emerged from the hatch of the pistachio, gave him a rude gesture, and disappeared again. Grimaud says she knows what she's doing, translated Planchet with an apologetic smile. Athos scowled and dropped back into his chair. What about you, D'Artagnan? I presume Commandant Essart requires you to outfit yourself for war. Hope that metal monster of yours is in decent condition. I'm not with the Mecca squad anymore, Dana admitted. Athos tore off his goggles to stare at her. What's that supposed to mean? Admiral Treville seconded me, she said. Trying not to grin too, obviously. Not as a musketeer. Supplies transport. But I'll be in the middle of it all, not stuck back here on defensive details. So, there was something unfamiliar in his expression. Athos looked at her for a long moment, then shrugged. If you really want to make sure you see action, there's always the Cardinal's sabres. I hear they're recruiting. Shut up, Dana said poking him in the knee with her boot. I have some self-respect. Athos clapped his hands. Speaking of self-respect, dinner tonight at Hotel Coquenard. Prepare to witness awkward mating rituals. I don't even know how to reply to that sentence, said Dana, dizzied by the rapid switch in tone. Isn't that a fancy hotel over in the Gillies section? How can we afford it? It's who you know, said Athos. He looked smug, which, in retrospect, Dana should have taken as a big neon warning sign. Dana was so out of her depth that she was practically floating in space. 
She had allowed Aramis to raid the suitcase of frocks borrowed from the Duchess of Buckingham, which seemed a reasonable way to get rid of the bloody things, but somehow this turned into them both playing dress-up. An hour later, here was Dana in a formal gown, including long lace gloves and uncomfortable shoes. This was not the plan. She hadn't realised there needed to be a plan, but if there had been a plan, it would have been everything that wasn't this. Aramis wore Buck's clothes as if she were a duchess. She had re-inked her henna tattoos since their return to Paris, with an extra loop of stars and leaves painted onto the back of her neck. Dipping down below the sweep of the gold satin of the dress, she poured over her willowy body. Dana, shorter and more muscular than Aramis, and with a much flatter chest, had never attempted to wear that particular gown, as she was sure it would look indecent on her body. On Aramis, it was the graceful, awesome kind of indecent that she could totally rock. Aramis had forced Dana into a simple but devastating black cocktail dress that went past her knees. She insisted that Dana wear the Prince Regent's opal on her cheekbone instead of hitting away near her elbow. The appearance of Porthos swept away any concern that Dana might be overdressed. Porthos was squeezed into a purple corset and layered tulle skirt with a fierce collection of garnet and pearl jewellery wrapped around her neck, wrists and fingers. Her wig was high, as dark red as the jewels, and her face glowed with professional war paint. I'm missing something, aren't I? Dana said in a low voice to Aramis as they followed their friend into the fiercely expensive lobby of the hotel and made their way to a restaurant that belonged in a palace. Where's Athos? Athos was never going to turn up, said Aramis, as they were escorted to a table for three. He hates these scenes. Dana tried not to freak out about this, but it was difficult. I also hate scenes, she said in a desperate whisper. Why did no one warn me there were going to be scenes? Porthos gave her a lipstick smile as the waiter fussed around them. Because revenge is best served cold, possibly with a nice soup and salad to start, she said, not bothering to keep her own voice down. Porthos is here to make a point to one of her gentleman friends, said Aramis, pursuing the menu. You and I are here for damage control, in case things get out of hand. Dana decided, right in that second, that Athos had to die. Slowly, by fork. Thanks for listening to Sheep Might Fly. Uh, there'll be more musketeer hijinks in Fancy Frogs next week. You can sign up to my author newsletter for updates. Follow me on Twitter at TansyRR. And if you like this podcast, consider supporting me at Patreon where you can receive all kinds of bonus rewards, early ebooks, and exclusive stories for a small monthly pledge. See you next week. Music.